Welcome to today's episode. We are calling this one Histories. Naveen is going to talk about the many versions of the founding myth of Hyderabad and how the versions don't all agree. And Rishi is going to talk about the fictional histories in the Watchmen graphic novel and TV show and how sometimes fiction informs the real world. And as always, there will be a couple of tangential diversions just to keep you entertained. Hello and welcome to the Bantaman. We are Naveen and Rishi, just two guys talking about things that interest us, mostly to amuse one another and occasionally to learn something. We'll do this in conversation with each other and maybe some friends. These will be freewheeling conversations about things that interest and fascinate us. Each of us draws on our hobbies and interests and the other takes more of a curious person role. We take turns being Socrates and Plato if you want to be highfalutin about it. I want to quickly introduce uh, today's uh, topic for your segment, Naveen, uh, which is history. And I know this is close to your heart because one of the things that you do is uh, you take people on heritage walks as a part of the Hyderabad Walking Company, uh, where you introduce them to the the culture, the history, the heritage of uh, Hyderabad. Uh, and I know this is a subject close to your heart. Um, uh, and as we've spoken about a few times, you know, you, you've always found that whenever you go to a place, uh, it's one thing to look at the sites. It's another entirely to understand them and understanding them requires you knowing the history of the place. So I'm sure you've gone deep down that rabbit hole of figuring out what the history of various places is and that informs your segment today. I, I just wanted to preface the segment by saying um, this is something close to your heart. It is also something that you've actually put some hours of research into. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for that uh, introduction. Today we'll take a look at uh, the story of uh, Golconda and uh, how different histories were written and how uh, later histories have different uh, slants based on when they were written and what they were written for. It is also interesting to me to talk about this in the light of things happening around us today. Right. Um, in different parts of the world, we see a whole bunch of uh, new narratives spring up. Uh, from different sources. Right. So it's interesting to uh, kind of go back and look at how this has happened throughout history as well. Right, right. So it's almost fake news, but when it stops being news and becomes history. Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah, I wouldn't even go for so far as to say fake histories. History can tell whatever story you wanted to tell. Yeah. That's something uh, that we will uh, see today. Perfect. Okay. So jumping in then. Right. So uh, what I'm going to do is... Uh, quickly talk about, uh, you know, a broad outline of the history that we're going to talk about, the history of Golconda. And then we will uh, take a look at the source of histories, uh, essentially, uh, how do we know these things? Mm -hmm. And then we'll take a look at what people in different times uh, did with uh, these histories, what they wrote using them as sources. Okay. And then we can kind of uh, try and see how that uh, those lessons are relevant for us in modern times. Right. So the story begins um, in the late 1400s mm -hmm. um, in the Deccan Plateau in India. Yeah. 
And uh, he starts with the Bahmani Empire, which was at that point uh, the largest empire in the Indian subcontinent. A while later, the Bahmani Empire, as it declined, uh, the five Deccan Sultanates came into being. And one of them was the uh, Qutub Shahi Sultanate. Right. And uh, it came into being roughly in uh, 1512. During the same time, uh, when the Qutub Shahi Empire came into being and the Deccan Sultanates were formed, uh, in Delhi, this was the time the Mughal Empire was rising. Now, this is very important. Uh, we will come to it later as well, because the Mughal Empire uh, kind of always formed the uh, northern borders of the Deccan Sultanates. Right. And their interactions with the Deccan Sultanates determined a lot of how they uh, interacted with each other as well. There's also the Eye of Sauron, which was kind <laughs> of uh, the Mughal power that was growing in Delhi. Right. And it was only a matter of time before it turned upon the Deccan and um, ultimately was the end for many of the Deccan Sultanates. Um, so that's that's why it's important to keep in mind the time scale to know that while the Deccan Sultanates were growing in the south, right. uh, the Mughals were rising in the north. So we won't go into like the detailed history of the Qutub Shahi Empire. Uh, but what I want to kind of call out is like the major things that we know about them, mm -hmm. right? Um, for sure, without any uh, debate. Right. Right. The first thing is that um, throughout their existence, they controlled the world's supply of diamonds. Oh, right. Okay. Like all the world's diamonds came from the mines which were in the Qutub Shahi Empire. Right. This was really, really important because this also meant in addition to their uh, their uh, reputation as a trading empire this also meant that they were one of the wealthiest empires in the world when they were uh, ruling so this also meant that you know they were ripe for conquest from any side uh, but by keeping their uh, borders intact through either you know military or by uh, diplomatic means they kept the trade going in their uh, mm -hmm. kingdom and as a result, they were quite prosperous, right? Um, and of course, from the diamonds, the most famous, of course, is the Kohinoor. Which right. We know where that is currently. <laughs> yes, but but it originated in Hyderabad, in Golconda. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Some of the world's largest diamonds uh, came from Golconda. And even today, uh, a diamond which is of a Golconda quality is... Uh, of immensely high uh, quality. Okay. Uh, it was not until the uh, early 1700s, after the demise of the Qutub uh, Shahi Empire, that diamonds were discovered outside of Golconda for the first time. So that's that's something to keep in mind that these guys were immensely wealthy and they controlled the world supply of diamonds. Yeah. And the second thing we know for sure is that. Um, they founded the city of Hyderabad, where right. we are in right now. These are the two main things that we should uh, keep in mind when we say, what did the Qutub Shahi Empire do? Um, they produced the Golconda diamonds and they uh, founded the city of Hyderabad. Right. And and when you when you talk about the Qutub Shahi Empire, then uh, just, just so I have this clear in my head, do they predate the Bahmani Sultanate or they were one of the uh, one of the splinters that came out of the Bahmani Sultanate? Yeah, technically, they were one of the splinters that came out of the Bahmani uh, okay. Sultanate. Um, they in, in time, the beginning of the uh, Qutub Shahi Empire coincides with the end of the Bahmani Empire. Got it. OK. Um, now, 
the the empire lasted till 1687 we know for sure when uh, the empire ended because okay. they uh, the city of uh, golconda was uh, besieged by aurangzeb who was uh, who was the mogul emperor at that point right uh, after an eight month long siege they uh, conquered the fort and uh, they took the whole kingdom and right. the kingdom of the mogul empire now this is that's it we're not going to talk anything more we don't i don't want to talk in detail about anything else about this whole thing okay this is just to give us an idea of what we're talking about right right and uh, i'm not here to uh, debate one side or the other of any of what yeah. i said yeah. there are alternate versions of what happened we're not going into all of that and and yeah i mean you know just from a lay person's perspective um i would also say as we tell this story don't get too attached to either the qutub shahi or the mughal empire because we <laughs> know for a fact that uh maybe 100 years after aurangzeb's death the mughal emperor it uh, himself was deposed uh the nizamul mulk then became his own sort of local ruler and set up the uh, asaf jahi dynasty in hyderabad so yep, you yep. know empires come and go we we're just talking yep. about the transition from or, or the lifetime of the qutub shahi just uh, just empire. one empire yeah yeah yep. and we're not even doing that in detail the reason i want to uh, wanted to like give this broad outline is to kind of uh, fix the uh, fix the boundaries of the right. time period that we're talking about right yep. we're just talking about this particular time period starting at 1512 and ending at 1687 um so that's it so that's the outline okay right we're now going to talk about the sources of history right okay. how do we know what happened um uh, during the qutub shahi empire for example um there are many different sources of history yeah uh, but the qutub shahi empire is a very interesting uh, case study because like i told you it was a place built on trade there yeah. were a lot of uh, visitors from many different parts of the world who came to uh, the court of the qutub shahis uh, mainly to trade uh, and a lot of them actually left behind um, chronicles of what they saw during their visits as well as what they um, uh, of the what the kings did okay. uh, during that time apart from that we also have uh, we have court records from the qutub shahi times that have survived we have uh, we have a persian chronicler called farishta who essentially went around writing chronicles of the different kingdoms he traveled hmm. to um it's uh, it's a varied uh, bunch of sources that we have we have arab travelers who came here merchants as well as travelers who right. left behind accounts of uh, what they saw what they heard what they experienced uh we also had a bunch of european folks who came here okay. so we have uh, accounts written by the french and by uh, italian travelers um and of course the chinese were here as well so we have their accounts as well so so, so was this part of the silk route or was this just off the silk route no this was off the silk route the silk route was essentially an overland route okay um ours was uh, here was both land as well as uh, the seaport of uh, machlipatnam okay. was the main yeah. uh, seaport of the qutub shahis so uh, this was off the silk route but this was an essential uh, stop in uh, the trade routes okay uh, and uh, a favorite uh, way of putting that is uh, if you're a chinese guy and you wanted an arab horse you didn't have to go all the way to <laughs> arabia you would come here to get it right so this was a kind of trade crossroads and uh, 
it must have been quite uh, exciting in those days like the yeah. city of golconda uh, like how we uh, imagine uh, istanbul to be it's like the crossroads of civilization right right uh, yes uh, east meets west so well here different parts of the east middle east west. meets far east i suppose <laughs> we, yeah. we had the west as well i mean we had a bunch yeah. of uh, yeah. western europeans here as well so it was it was quite a uh, uh, quite a mix of uh, people here right so because of which also we have a wealth of records from these folks so these were primary sources these guys literally wrote what they saw okay. so it wasn't uh it wasn't them relying on another primary source so right. uh like uh, there is a for example there is a um, an account of uh, one of the travelers the french travelers describing uh the tomb of the uh, 6th king where he says it had a large green dome so even today when we visit there we can see some of the green uh, tiles are left oh wow okay so he wrote what he saw with his eyes so he, he was like the anthony bourdain of his time uh, <laughs> writing travelogues <laughs> absolutely so that's that's the kind of thing we um, we get right these are primary accounts of people writing down what they saw right uh which is not to say that you know obviously it had its own uh, they wrote with their world view so we'll have to account for that while uh, dealing with primary sources as well now this is the these are the basic sources the primary sources for the histories now what we read today i mean i cannot i cannot read ancient chinese i cannot read uh, yeah, yeah i cannot read arabic or ancient arabic or uh, medieval italian or um, french for that matter so what we do is we turn to uh, secondary sources hmm. where a bunch of folks wrote histories based on uh, these accounts right right uh, like the earliest uh, sources that uh, in english that we see are uh, history books that were written um, at the behest of the east india company okay they essentially compiled these uh, histories of uh, the local regions because when they sent somebody out here to uh, from london um, they needed to have an idea of what they were going to face right and uh, that is how the first uh, english histories were did were done about india they were commissioned by the east india company and typically they were written by um, scholars from oxford um, or cambridge who could uh, read arabic or right. could uh, okay. read persian and they would do translations of all of this and then they would write english histories they were not what they wrote were not translations but using these primary sources they wrote histories from the perspective of what a colonial um a colonial official would need to know right okay so that was their perspective right so when you are when you are going into a kings or emperors court make sure who not to offend what not to say it was more to enable diplomacy and knowing the factions kind of a thing kind of yes yes absolutely the so don't get yourself killed make sure you kill all the people you don't <laughs> want to that kind of a thing it is colonialism after all yeah yeah um so yeah so uh, that, those were the first uh, histories that were written and uh, the narrative which you see there is quite um, uh it's like uh, you know the white man's burden kind of a thing oh. okay we're here these are the barbarians we need to teach them how to uh, be civilized right um and so those that's the voice with which this is written right and then we come across uh no we we should remember um aurangzeb died in 1707 
And uh, the Nizam al-Mulk uh, became the ruler of uh, Hyderabad in 1724, just right. uh, what 17 years later. Right now, which meant that any history is written locally, where then part of uh, were written from the Nizam's dominion. Oh, right. right? Okay. Yeah. So then we come across a very different kind of uh, history, because these were written by men whose uh, forefathers had. Uh, experienced this uh, right. the, the kingdom they also had they were also very aligned to uh, political factions hmm. so there was the the Mughals who were Sunnis and uh, the Qutub uh, Shahis were Shias Ooh, okay. so there was also that difference and that is also brought into the narrative right so during the Nizam's times, uh, the earlier times, they would hark more to, uh, because they derived their authority from the Mughals, they would hark more to the Mughal point of view, where it was like, uh, Mughals were the civilizing foes on the ah. uh, Qutub Shahis. Right. Uh, these poor guys were at the receiving end of being civilized by all these people. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so that is in the early uh, Nizams. During the later Nizams, right, like the sixth and the seventh Nizams, um, the the narrative was more Nizam centric, where right. the Nizams had come into their own as being uh, acknowledged as rulers of the place. So again, uh, the narrative would be where uh, the current Nizams being enlightened rulers when compared to the dark ages of the Qutub Shahi rule. So right. okay. that narrative was what was brought in right? Right. once Hyderabad became part of India. We have uh, very nationalist histories being written. And, and this is very, very recent, right? So this is, we are talking about histories written in the 1960s and 60s, 70s now. In the yeah. 60s, right? Um, what you see in the, the 60s histories are very uh, uh, interesting. You see how Hyderabad has been delivered from the benighted ages of feudalism. Right. Which were both the Nizam's times as well as the uh, Qutub Shahis. Right. So and at this point, um, because uh, the Nizam's times were more recent and in uh, recent history, there were events that you wanted to point to and show why it was better to be part of India, you kind of showed the Qutub Shahis in better light and right. showed these as darker ages. Uh, and these were these are very, um, uh, very interesting reads, especially when you place them in context and read them. So, so the, the additional thing that um, occurs to me is, although there will be histories written in the 60s and 70s, they were written by a largely, um, I know the word's a bit controversial these days, but largely secular perspective where, um, you know, as a part of independent India, I think people were conscious that Hyderabad state, as it was then known, was never really fully a part of British India because the Nizam had become sort of a vassal to the British Empire. Yep. Uh, it's interesting you should bring that up because, uh, no, the six, I the 60s histories were uh, very much controlled. The narrative was very much controlled by the elites uh, in India at that point. Right. So... I wouldn't go so far as to call it secular. Okay. Um, but definitely you could see the, um, you know, you could see how it was influenced by uh, what message that was being tried to spread, right. okay. being spread at that point. Essentially saying, oh, we're all one country. It was the whole nationalistic uh, thing that was written right. at that right. point. Right. And then slowly it evolved in the, uh, you see in the uh, 80s and 90s, they portray the Nizam's times as, uh, 
being extremely progressive and how um, during the time of the Nizams, especially the 6th and the 7th Nizams, uh, Hyderabad was way ahead of the rest of India when it came to, ah. uh, you know, life and the standard of living. Right. So, while again, I want to emphasize, right, none of this is, uh, I'm not arguing either side of the story. I'm just like looking at how these narratives were uh, right. made, right? right? And uh, there could be elements of truth in it. There could be elements of propaganda in it as well. And uh, what I want us to uh, recognize at this point is you're telling the story, the history of uh, this city, and you are talking about it through all of these different lenses. Right. Um, and uh, trying to reconcile one with the other um, is not really a good thing to do. Some of the modern narratives that we are seeing are uh, very interesting because suddenly nothing is simple right hmm. nothing is simple anymore uh, you have you have uh, way more nuanced stories being written okay and then you suddenly realize history is not a single river it's not one single stream right there is there is so much complexity in it that it's just not possible to say that, you know what, there was this king, then there was this king, then there was this king, and this king was defeated by this other empire and that was the end of it. No, right. you know, there are ebbs and flows within the uh, empire. There are uh, narratives emerging, which are from uh, non-elite sources. Uh, so it's, it, we are at a very interesting uh, crossroads that way, uh, that a lot of very, uh, accepted narrative is being uh, rewritten. So, okay. So, um, I, I've got to ask you, you know, give us some examples of the differences in narratives that we've seen. So, for example, a few stories that are true for histories written before a certain year and then some that are only appearing in later histories, maybe. But let's take a quick break before we do that and come right back. Right. Uh, so, Naveen, uh, I'm going to tell you the version or I suppose the story that I have heard about why Hyderabad is called Hyderabad and sort of the founding myth. Uh -huh. um, and then you can tell me the various cultural and historical lenses that it has been filtered through and we can talk about which parts are fact and which parts are fiction. Okay. Take okay. it away. So, um, Hyderabad is called Hyderabad because there was a uh, young lady who caught one of the Qutub Shah's princes eye. Um, I forget the, I forget which bloke it was, but the lady was called Bhagmati and she was a uh, Hindu um, sort of village bell kind of a thing. Uh, they fell in love and when she married him, she converted to Islam and her name became Heather Mahal. And therefore this fellow, because he had met her um, on the banks of the Musi and at a particular spot decided that's the spot where I'm going to found a beautiful city and name it Hyderabad after Heather Mahal. Uh, so that's the story I've heard. I, I, I'm not sure of the sort of years of establishment and things of that sort. All that detail tends to get uh, frankly discarded in favor of the unifying uh, sort of cross-religion love story. All right. So 
Fair enough. This is this is the official founding story of Hyderabad. Uh, even if you go to the Sound and Light show at uh, okay. uh, the Golconda Fort, this is the story you will hear. Th- that's probably where I heard it, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> although I, I I don't know what my sources are, to be honest. Fair enough. No, this is it's it's it, this is a very popular uh, version of the story of the naming of Hyderabad. Um, we have different versions of this. Now, okay. there's a bunch of people who claim that. Uh, Bagmati never existed. Okay. There wasn't um, any, it wasn't known as uh, Bagnagar or anything. And that uh, Heather, Hyderabad gets its name from, name from Heather, which is uh, one of the names by which uh, Hussein is known. Oh, Hussein okay. was a very important uh, uh, part of the Shia faith. Um, yeah. He was the grandson of the prophet who was killed in the battle of Karbala and for which they uh, observe uh, Muharram every year. Um, and that's a huge thing in Hyderabad even today. Yes. Muharram is massive and Hyderabad has a huge uh, Shia population. But what also um, um, that means is that this is an entirely different a reason for why the city is known as Hyderabad. Right. Um, and it also gives it a very strong uh, religious uh, slant. Now, I'm not, I'm not on either side of the fence because uh, frankly, both are versions mm-hmm. and uh, both of, both camps will pull different documents to support their uh, story. Right. But if you ask me, it's not settled in either direction, one way one way or the other, it is not being So settled. are these the only two origin stories then or are there more? These are the two dominant uh, narratives. Okay. And there are people who will attempt to reconcile the two uh, by taking a bit of this and a bit of that. And some- she picked the name Heather Mahal because Heather was one of the names <laughs> of <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there's someone who says that uh, but this is the, and this is a hot topic um, you ask anybody who's like you know a, a Hyderabad enthusiast right today and uh, they will vehemently talk one side or the other of this okay um, and to be honest I have been um, I've been led into either camp uh on many occasions, okay. right? And it's simply because of that, that I remain undecided at this point. Okay. Because literally, so each camp comes up with a different type of uh, objection, right? So if Bhagmati was as um, influential as uh, she is supposed to have been, right? Uh, where is her tomb? She would definitely have a fantastic tomb just like the others in the Qutub Shahi tombs. Right. Oh, yeah. right where her uh, husband, uh, her supposed husband, Mohammed Kuli Qutub Shah, has the largest tomb of all. Right. 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 Uh, Ooh, so, and I mean, again, for context, the, the tombs we're talking about, where you took me on a walk, and this is how I know this. Um, uh, there are some really famous and uh, favorites of the king sort of singers buried there and you can yeah. identify that they're buried there. So somebody yeah. as yeah. important as Heather Mahal would definitely be identified. That, that, that's that's the theory, right? I mean, there are there are the king's doctors are buried there. Right. Um, so, I mean, it was only uh, logical that somebody as influential as her would have been buried there. Uh, but then the other camp points to some other site in uh, near the Charmina and says that's actually the uh, tomb of Bhagmati. Right. And 
you don't have access to it because people don't want you to believe that this city was named after <laughs> you know her so this uh, this gets very uh, tense especially when you bring religion into it yeah. right yeah and so this is probably like the biggest um controversial uh, biggest point in which you have competing stories okay. there and this even ordinary hyderabadis on the street when you talk to them they will subscribe to one or the other of right, right right so uh, it's interesting again so then uh, we have the iconic structure of the charminar in uh, hyderabad right yeah. so then the question comes uh, why was the charminar built oh right so again let me jump in the version i heard the super romantic version was the charminar actually marks the spot where mohammad kuli qutub shah first saw bagmati yeah that is a problematic on many many levels right because the same people tell you that she was singing in a temple when he saw her ah okay so then the question is where is that temple so people i mean it is uh, you get caught in your own stories in your web of stories as well right. I'm, i'm not again talking on any side of this right yeah 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 because these are all stories that people no, so, tell no so i mean the the whole I, i guess your approach would be very clinical trying to get to what are the facts and therefore what inference can be drawn from it yeah but see the point is um a bunch of these are not verifiable like mm. the whole bagmati story is uh, problematic because there is very little documentary evidence right right that directly show that she was there right uh so which is why and the other thing is there are a bunch of other stories as to why the um, charminar was built and it talks about how there was a plague and when the plague was cured the um king built it as a mark of thanksgiving oh, okay. right? right which makes absolutely no sense whatsoever because this was the middle ages and they lived in very crowded uh, spaces in the golconda in the city of golconda plague was common place it was not right. something that somebody would have built something as magnificent as the charminar for right um but what to me the why the charminar was built was simply because um, hyderabad at that point was a planned city and the charminar was uh, was built as a jewel of the city it was it was kind of the um, sultan's way of showing off his magnificence right it's almost suggesting to me that either or both stories uh, have almost become uh, a romantic need for modern historians to sort of attach you know that that romance to the naming and origin of hyderabad <laughs> in a sense <laughs> well yes um, that's one way of looking at it absolutely um but uh yeah but, but in modern times the more the the debate is not amongst historians as much as it is amongst people like you and me who right. want to make sense of the city around them right um historians safely just take this middle ground and say you know what this is also there this is also there right this is the uh, documentary evidence we have so so in in terms of documentary evidence do we know how far back the references to the name hyderabad go oh yes the the, the city was built as the city of hyderabad there okay. was no so yeah, right yeah. from the founding yeah. everyone yeah. knew this place will be yeah. called hyderabad yes okay interesting and to kind of throw the whole thing into a i mean to give a whole twist to the whole thing uh when it was planned it was planned as a city of gardens so which means right. it was called bagnagar 
Oh, okay. All so right. that could have been a title for the city or the name of the city. We have no idea. Oh, right? So if you are in uh, you are in Golconda, you're going to say, "I'm going to head to the gardens. I'm going to head to Bagnagar," just because it is because Bag yeah. is garden in Hindi and Urdu. Yeah. So yeah, that kind of also mixes up the whole thing. Excellent. <laughs> All right. I think it's time for a short break, and then we'll come back with our thesis. Welcome back from the break. So, okay, uh, Naveen, I'm I'm going to try and in a way cap off uh, your uh, your story of the many stories of why Hyderabad is called Hyderabad. Yeah, sure thing. Um, so it occurs to me that you are, I think, it's fair to say, a rabid Sherlock Holmes fan, oh, hardcore yes. <laughs> Sherlock Holmes fan. And so if we if we take the inciting incident as the city is called Hyderabad. I think what we have uh, far well what I have discovered and what you've been telling me is that there are all these different eyewitnesses that each are an unreliable narrator it doesn't matter which version of history you read they all have their own agenda their own bias about what happened um but unfortunately for us uh, we are not sherlock nor should we attempt to be because the minute you take sides in all of this the minute you say i have arranged the facts and they suggest that this is what happened uh, you become part of the problem because you will pick sides uh, in what is essentially an unresolvable debate uh, is is that is that fair there's no sherlock here oh absolutely um, i can only think of uh, the robert browning poem that ends with the line uh the secret sits in the middle and knows indeed all right so that's interesting we live in a city that we ultimately aren't sure uh why it's named the way it is brilliant unless unless you take sides in which case you know for sure <laughs> <laughs> all right let's stop there and then we'll pick up again uh with another take on history a very different one So here we are with our first diversion for the day. Rishi, tell us what you've learned. Okay, uh my first diversion is really simple. It's a couple of new words that I've learned. Uh they are archaic words, they're not used very often, but I think they make a really lovely pair. So the first word is dumbfangled. Uh D U M F U N G L E D, which just means completely used up and exhausted the way you'd feel on a friday evening uh, uh-huh. at the end of a long week okay. um and then the second word is uh, similar sounding uh, it's smell fungus oh wow. all one word uh, you know s m e l l f u n g u s and smell fungus actually means somebody who finds fault with absolutely everything <laughs> i can so, think of a few people <laughs> <laughs> indeed so uh, just so you know uh, at my workplace my status on our corporate instant messenger these days is dumbfangled smell fungus <laughs> <laughs> fantastic that's brilliant Thank you for giving us a listen. We are the Bantaman, Naveen and Rishi. Do check out our website bantaman.com. 
We are available on your favorite podcasting platform and would really appreciate a like. Do subscribe if we've managed to intrigue you and please leave a rating and a review or more importantly your thoughts on anything we've discussed here today. We await your feedback and are happy to take any questions or ideas for future episodes. we are back now let's jump from history in the real world to history in the world of fiction yes indeed so um naveen what i want to talk about today is how history can become a really potent tool for fiction to make a point or two um i'm going to talk about a uh graphic novel and its sequel which is a recently aired television series um uh, we'll be talking about the watchmen uh, universe or the watchmen mythos um and really the reason i'm getting into this is because both the graphic novel and the history uh sorry Uh, both the graphic novel and the tv series uh, use history to make their points but use it in very very different ways all right but before we get all serious about it didn't we run into one of the authors a couple of years ago yeah well uh, we didn't run into the author uh, uh, the very singular author is uh, mr alan moore uh, who does not do comic convent- conventions but you're right we did run into david gibbons who is uh, the artist that drew the watchman graphic novels ah, and, yes uh, as i recall we bought him a drink at the local novotel oh, so fantastic um All right so uh, why why are we talking about the watchman obviously the tv series aired recently it was all the rage in all the pop culture uh, circles and um obviously i am a huge fan of graphic novels as you know uh, of comic book movies uh, tv everything and i thought uh, the television series was actually uh one of the most perfect sequels that i have ever seen uh-huh. um, okay i should warn you at this point i haven't read the graphic novel neither have i watched the series perfect perfect no that that is absolutely perfect and in fact let me go a step further in saying you don't have to be afraid that i will spoil either for you oh fantastic uh, so i'm going to steer absolutely clear of spoilers um but you will uh, hear some basic uh things about the structure of both the book mm-hmm. and the tv mm-hmm. series and uh, uh, sort of how they use history okay so uh, let's let's begin with the basics uh, for those who don't know uh, the watchman is a uh, 12 issue limited series uh, that came out in the 80s uh, it came out in the reagan era in the united states uh, although published as a comic series in the us it was written and drawn by a british author and artist so the author was alan moore the artist was dave gibbons and the colorist was john higgins um these 12 issues were later collected into what is called a graphic novel um that is one of the most adored and uh, seminal uh, graphic novels that ever came out in fact alongside another graphic novel called the dark knight returns uh it is considered the coming of age of the medium of ah. graphic novels so it uh, you know these two books together mark the point at which they stopped being comic books 
and became something better, something more artsy. Oh, interesting. Right? And, and interesting. for adults. <clears throat> so since we are talking about history, uh, it, it's interesting to me that uh, the limited series of comic books or the graphic novel uh, when collected together uses history to make a very, very particular point about what was then a worldwide phenomenon. So remember, this is the height of the Cold War, mm -hmm. right? And this was the Reagan years. And although Reagan gets sold these days as uh, sort of a post-partisan, super popular president who almost won 50 states mm -hmm. in the election, uh, to liberal uh, people, he represented sort of the apotheosis of uh, Nixon era republicanism. Uh -huh. uh, now, we, we don't need to get into the political side of this at all, but let me tell you what the setting for the Watchmen is and you'll see why it is immediately relevant to the subject at hand, which is sort of alternate versions of history. Sure. Uh, the Watchmen is set in a universe uh, much like ours, mm -hmm. but where there is one distinguishing feature. In the year 1938, a bunch of vigilantes came together. They called themselves the Minutemen and they announced that they would fight crime. And there were a bunch of people in that team, uh, the titular sort of watchmen. Um, and because they came out in 1938, uh, that changed world history significantly. Right. So, um, uh, the other sort of major event in there is that in a sort of cliched um, nuclear laboratory accident, a uh, particular scientist gets irradiated and becomes this sort of uber powerful take on Superman. He's practically omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent kind of a being that can disassemble himself into molecules and reassemble and oh, pretty much has wow. whatever powers uh, you can think of. Uh, he's called Dr. Manhattan uh -huh. because the accident happened on the Manhattan Project. Um, and he's the only superpowered character in the entire mythos. Okay. Everybody else, although they're superheroes, they're more like Batman. They're like um, uh, vigilantes, costumed crime, costumed, costumed crime fighters. Now, what has happened as a result is in the telling of the story, the Vietnam War happened with Dr. Manhattan and all these costumed heroes as a reality. So the Vietnam War ended in 57 days because Dr. Manhattan intervened. Ah. And at the wave of a hand entire platoons of the Viet Cong disappeared and Vietnam is now the 51st state of the United States. Oh, wow. Okay. Right? Yep. Talk about alternate history. Yeah. So, so the Cold War still happened. Every The nuclear race did happen because Dr. Manhattan came after the nuclear race took off proper. But you uh, sort of open in a dystopian 1980s where the president is still a chap called Richard Nixon. Uh -huh. Because the Watergate break-in was never discovered. Right. Uh, he has done away with term limits and has basically become like president for life. Um, okay. And in this era, costumed vigilantes or, or superheroes uh, are kind of a reality. Right. And the conceit of the graphic novel is that one of the superheroes, one of the heroes who is a part of the Minutemen, uh, the book opens with his murder. Uh, 
you see him die. You see him. Uh, it's an iconic scene. You see him fall out of a, a balcony or a window, actually. Um, and that leaves behind. He is called the comedian and his logo is the smiley face. Ah. Hence the blood splatter on the smiley face as the sort of icon uh, for the entire graphic novel. The, the point I want to make, I guess, is this graphic novel is entirely about what happens in a world full of these do-gooders who do not have any uh, authority above them. They're vigilantes. So, you know, the, the strap line for the entire book is Quos uh, Custodiet Ipsos Custodis, who watches the watchman. It appears throughout the graphic novel in many, many places. Um, but what it is really about is the conceit that heroes are a thing. It is the conceit that in an age that is so dystopian where everybody is um, uh, basically waiting for the uh, end of the world in a nuclear winter, uh, that a squad or a team of vigilantes can even pretend or even a, a superpowered being like Dr. Manhattan can even pretend that they can save the world. Mm -hmm. So the historical setting here is pretty much a alternate take on history. But what the author has done, what Alan Moore has done is he's taken largely world history as we know it, changed one thing in it, which is in 1938, there were superheroes. Mm -hmm. And well, changed two things. The second thing being that in the uh, 70s, we got Dr. Manhattan, uh, right. right? As a superpowered being, the Ubermensch that Nietzsche talks about. Um, and with those two changes, he's projected an entirely different world history, mm -hmm. uh, sort of where they've thought through a lot of different things, right? So for example, uh, because it is a Nixon government, there is this uh, undercurrent of almost resistance where people don't agree that he should be president for life, but you know there's not too much they can do about it. So there's that public uh, anger. Uh, obviously the Soviet Union is much diminished in the face of American superhero mm -hmm. might and yeah. all of that. Vietnam being the 51st state, all the implications thereof. But they use this historical setting to make uh, the central uh, point of the series. And in doing this, they create a vision of history that um, while being dystopian has echoes to the present day in uh -huh. a sense. Okay. So it's, it's, you know, when we were talking about uh, sort of the naming of Hyderabad and, and all of that, one, one sense that I got was here are historians who are applying their lens of uh, what they want to say by writing their history um, to the base of factual events. And here, what you have is sort of the other side of the coin, which is you've got a fiction writer just making up their own history uh, in order to tell their story. And I, I found that was uh, one of the things that set the Watchmen apart. Um, while it is, you know, there are many, many things you can say. I can basically talk about the Watchmen for an entire day <laughs> and uh, still not run out of things to say about it. But the way it uses that alternate history was, I thought, pertinent. And uh, so... 
you know, the, the history of the Watchmen is such that it was supposed to be a one and done thing. It was supposed to be something that Alan Moore wrote um, and it was supposed to be contained. Nobody attempted a sequel to it mm -hmm. for nearly 30, 40 years. Right. Uh, Zack Snyder made a movie called The Watchmen, which was a very uh, almost slavish uh, adaptation of the graphic novel. Uh, it was a mixed hit with critics and fans, but it didn't do very well commercially. Mm -hmm. And in the time since, um, uh, it, it was sort of treated as the holy grail of adaptations or sequels, where basically uh, because Alan Moore had written it to um, make use of the particular medium of comic books, uh, he actually made it to be unadaptable. Ah, okay. And therefore, not too many creators actually had the, uh, frankly, hubris to say, all right, I will adapt this or I will right. write right. a sequel to it. Um, but obviously, as history is our witness, uh, sequels were written, prequels were written. There are comic books out there that are called Before the Watchmen uh, that, are, that tell some stories, backstory for characters in The Watchmen. And of course, there is a TV series that came out in 2019, which again, uh, harkens back to history in a very interesting way. But we'll get to that in the next section. Uh, we're back and uh, Rishi, let's talk about the TV series. Yes. Um, so The Watchmen was easily, easily the best TV series I've seen in the last couple of years, probably. Um, it is called The Watchmen and it happens in the same universe as the graphic novel. So Nixon was president in the 80s. Uh, we are now in the Redford administration where Robert Redford is president oh, and okay. has been for a decade or more. Um, I, I forget exactly how long. It is a contemporaneous series that is set in 2019. And uh, I won't give it uh, I won't give too much away, but there's some characters that appear in it that are actually characters from the original graphic novel. So here's how the TV series uses history, right? Yes, it is an alternate history again, because it has further extrapolated by another 30 years or so uh, the events of the comic book. The, the comic book ends on a sort of very interesting um, bittersweet note where essentially the, the evil geniuses the the you know sort of dr evil of this universe his scheme has worked the heroes have if you squint at it just so lost uh, but the supervillain thinks that the world will be a better place for it and one of the last lines from the supervillain is uh, in the graphic novel is, well, in the end, it was all worth it or something like that. Okay. And then our one of the few remaining heroes uh, says to him, uh, nothing ends, nothing ever ends. Right. Right. Um, and, you know, so it's ironic that it took 30 years to come up with the sequel. But here we are in the same universe 30 years on. But instead of just doing a further extrapolation, what Damon Lindelof, the creator of the show and uh, the person that led the writer's room has done with the show is he's actually dug up 
real world historical events from the 1920s, so predating Alan Moore's deviation in 1938, that are extremely relevant to the uh, entire plot, the conceit of the TV series, because the way he approached it, and you know, you, you can go out there and listen to him wax eloquent about it on various interviews. Um, the Watchmen was written at a time when the Cold War was the most pressing thing on everyone's mind. You know, kids were doing duck and cover drills in schools. Uh, everybody assumed that nuclear Armageddon was around the corner. And one of the recurring motifs in the Watchmen graphic novel is the doomsday clock. Right. When he thought about it for 2019 in America, uh, he thought the thing that is on everyone's mind is uh, the race war, the sort of racial politics of it in a post Obama Trump era. Yep. Uh, this is know, America. This is America pretty much. Yeah. Um, so he wanted to write about that. And so what he did was he went back to 1921 and uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, where there was a massive race riot against what was called Black Wall Street. Mm -hmm. uh, a bunch of uh, African-Americans that were really well-to-do lived in Tulsa um, and who were brutally um, killed by the Klan. Uh, and, and it was so one-sided, the Klan actually used uh, crop dusting uh, aircraft so they had an air force strafing wow. Main Street in Tulsa, just gunning people down. So I, I remember I sat down to watch the opening episode of the show and I saw this happen and, you know, uh, it was being released weekly. So uh, obviously, uh, you know, you, you're curious about what happens next. You go online, you Google a bit. And I remember being stunned to find out that the Tulsa race riots were a real thing. So this 1921 occurrence was real uh, and is it presented as it as is or is it a uh, well i mean we we follow one particular character in that race riot who mm -hmm. then becomes relevant to the story the okay. tv series is trying to tell but the fact that it was a real world event and the fact that it was pretty faithfully depicted right. you know obviously there's some dramatization there's some melodrama yeah. but um it was a shock to me to find out that this really happened. Right. And I saw some interviews where uh, African-Americans were basically just, you know, slow clapping at the TV series because the Tulsa race riots is a story that is told in African-American households. If, if you belong to that minority group, you've probably heard about it. Right. But if you read mainstream American history, it's probably a footnote. Yep. So because it is not convenient to the history as America likes to tell it, mm -hmm. right? So, um, uh, you know, civil rights legislation was passed in the in uh, the 1960s. America fought a civil war over it in the 1860s. But here we are sort of balanced halfway between these two real world historical events. And something of this magnitude happened. Um, and as you know, I like to think of myself as someone who's read quite a lot of American literature, certainly pop culture mm -hmm. and so on. I don't expect to be surprised by such an event in American history that nobody's talked about. 
Right. And, and it was a significant event as well. It wasn't yeah, something yeah. that was small that could be brushed. Exactly. Away. And it has left, it is something that has left scars on the African-American mind. Right. Um, and I'm sure there's tons of other events like it that have happened. So to me, what was really interesting about the TV series, sort of bringing it back to alternate histories was, yes, they were telling a fictional tale and uh, they address the race politics in the United States sort of head on in this TV series, right? There is no blinking away, uh, no sugarcoating anything. Um, but as their casus belly almost, or, or the, the reason why the whole thing happens, they used a forgotten real world event and wove mm -hmm. that into. So um, for me, the, the whole show from the first episode on, I mean, there's, there's a lot of really cool things if you're a, a fan of the comic book um, and there's, you know, twists and turns, exciting endings, all, all the stuff you would expect from a regular sort of pot boiler. Mm -hmm. But running through it is this um, searing realization that history isn't what you think it is. Mm -hmm. um, and time and again, you, you see some events, you see some characters from different perspectives. It does go back to 1970s Vietnam as the 51st state of the United States uh, because it is the place where a number of key characters originate. Right. Uh, it addresses the question of... Uh, you know, what would an omnipotent uh, being do uh, when he was tired of being omnipotent or when he fell in love? Ah, uh, right. So right. there's there's all kinds of interesting questions it raises and answers. But to me, the fact that uh, it took a work of fiction to teach me world history or certainly national history for the United States was in itself a really remarkable thing. Um, I wonder, you know, just thinking about the Watchmen, uh, both the comic books and the um, TV series, I wonder if an alt history of the United States actually now needs to be written in the sort of, well, we're not quite there yet, but in, in the post-racial sort of fact-driven uh, uh, history writing of today, or where at least we aren't aware of the biases that we have um, when we write our histories. That's that's interesting you should say that because you remember we spoke earlier about how uh, in modern retellings, uh, <clears throat> other formerly suppressed voices are emerging. And that gives us a way more uh, um, in-depth understanding of what things were actually uh, right. then, right? right? And this is analogous to that. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, you know, if, if I sort of think about it um, from a, a, a holistic perspective, what the Watchmen universe does, uh, and, and certainly uh, I, I should say I'm only talking about the graphic novel and the TV series, is it uses history as its playground, but... It, it challenges you to say, here's a bunch of fictional events we've written that are deeply interesting. But guess what? They are a direct consequence of real world events that if they'd just gone slightly differently, uh, the fictional history we are writing would be true. 
That's that's what the graphic novel does. And then here is the TV series saying, dude, you don't even know what your real history is. So, yes, come come in and enjoy this alternate take on history. But maybe it's not as alternate as you think, uh, which is which actually, if you extend that same uh, analogy, right, where you say that, OK, we've written here's a bunch of alternate uh, stories that we've written, alternate history stories that we've written. Yeah. Now you take away the um, uh, the role of fiction writer and then say somebody does this and yeah. they pose as a historian. Yeah. And unless they tell you themselves, you're definitely going to have a bunch of people who are going to say that's exactly what happened. And yeah. that is why this is happening today. And we are seeing this happen all around us today. True. Right? True. No, absolutely. All right. So that's the TV series, The Watchmen and its take on history. We'll be right back with some uh, concluding discussion on this topic. But uh, let's do that after a short break. Okay, so Naveen, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to bring the uh, conclusions together with two stories, um, right? Okay, um, always ready to listen to a story. Right, and, and uh, you know, hopefully you've heard both of these, but uh, there is a movie that is having a little bit of a renaissance. It's the 20th anniversary of the making of this movie. The movie is called Galaxy Quest. Uh -huh. And uh, this is... I, I suppose another take on how history can be misconstrued or construed. Um, Galaxy Quest is a, uh, on the surface, a spoof of Star Trek. So there is a Captain James Kirk-like character who's a drunkard and a, a bit of a Casanova, uh, <laughs> you know, a lout whose <laughs> crowning achievement was playing a Captain James T. Kirk equivalent on a Star Trek-like TV show. Right. Um, and uh, he goes to a fan convention where these bunch of what he thinks are cosplaying people walk up to him and say, oh, we need your help, Captain. We need you to save us from some galactic supervillain. <laughs> And he plays along with it. He thinks, oh, all right, I'm, I'm a bit hungover. Maybe, you know, I'd signed up for this and don't even remember. <laughs> Next thing you know, he's been uh, taken away in a UFO and his whole fictional crew has also been kidnapped to go with him. And what they realize is that the aliens that have kidnapped them have seen the Star Trek-like TV show, think it's all real. And therefore, they went ahead and built the USS Enterprise for him and his crew. Oh, wow. And now they need their help to battle a real supervillain. <laughs> and of course, it does not go very well at all. <laughs> uh, so it's a comedy. It's a comment on fan culture. But to me, the, the interesting thing there is, if you squint just so, uh, whether you're thinking about the Watchmen as an alternate history, uh, or you're thinking about it as a historical document mm -hmm. is a matter of perspective. Imagine if, you know, the 5,000 years down the line, somebody discovers the Watchmen graphic novel and thinks, oh, you know, if it's the only book surviving from our era, uh, we'll think, oh, so, you know, they had shifted from hieroglyphics to writing comic books. Right. And this is a history of 1985 and they'll just think it's all real. Yep. Um, so, so that's sort of one, one thought to dwell on. The other one is uh, going back to sort of proto-history, 
a little bit uh, you know every indian kid growing up uh, is told that in the prehistory era all these different mythological epics really happened right um, ram was real ayodhya was real he did walk down to lanka look you know there's the setu that he walked across mm-hmm. um, the mahabharat is something similar and uh, you know the reason it comes to mind for me is whenever my grandmother used to tell me the mahabharat and this is long before the br chopra tv series thank you um she used to say uh, the mahabharat more so than the ramayan is a matter of perspective mm-hmm. uh, and she used to love to say uh, you know uh, history is always written by the victors and so because the pandavas won the mahabharat war um we now know the man who is duryodhan as duryodhan when his name was probably suryodhan right uh, we know dushasan as dushasan which means bad governance who would name their kid that right but if <laughs> if, if he was named sushasan that kind of makes sense um so what has happened is uh, in her view because the pandavas won mm-hmm. uh, they accreted all this mythological baggage of um being the do gooders and then naturally you had to paint the enemy black right and and therefore they became the side of evil um even even with the ramayana actually i mean there are temples to ravan in uh, yes, certain parts of india yeah. and you know there is that alternate ramayan to be told <laughs> so uh, you know all all of this got me thinking whether we're talking about the watchman or star trek and galaxy quest or we are talking about uh, you know the mahabharat and the ramayan these are all uh don't at me fictional histories in a way um and then you've got uh, you know various historians that are writing basically historical fiction um <laughs> but uh, the the commonality between them is uh, ultimately the author is going to write through their lens and then depending on what time the reader belongs to we are going to take away what we want to take away from them so you know that that sort of my parting thought but what do you think oh, that's that's really interesting i think uh, the narrative once woven um, is out of the viewer's hands and it's us to use as we want and so indeed yeah so, so yeah we'll talk more about that when absolutely let's let's put a pin in that uh, we'll we'll probably go into a diversion next but then we'll come back for the thesis of today's episode okay so now we are going into today's second diversion which is uh, navin i think you're going to read as a poem absolutely here goes no flake a reflection on sameness and difference one day you will realize there is nothing special about you only a few billion others are exactly like you any difference you see only you see wow okay who's this by uh, this is by a very angsty me i think <laughs> <laughs> okay fair enough fair enough all right thank you for that thank you
All right, so Naveen, uh, this is the segment where we try to bring it all together and put a pretty little bow on top. So let me start off by just recapping the the wild trip we've taken. Um, so we we started uh, with talking about sort of the history of the Golconda Sultanate or the Qutub Shahi Empire. Right. Uh, depending on how you want to call it we talked about the establishment of the city of hyderabad and the fact that we pretty much know that it was established in a certain year but beyond that the facts get fuzzy the naming of the city is a matter of big debate and depending on which version of history uh, told by a particular teller you want to believe um, it can be wildly different yep then we talked in my segment a little bit about alternate histories and how both the watchman novel and uh, the watchman tv series sort of use history to weave an elaborate narrative to make certain points um, uh, the novel for me about paranoia about uh, sort of the hubris of vigilantes and heroes and the tv series absolutely about uh today's world and race relations um but the the interesting contrast there was watchmen the graphic novel changed one or two things in real history and projected what would happen watchmen the tv series then brought back forgotten history into the same narrative and showed how that is germane to the right. present right and uh to me uh just talking about these things uh highlights something that uh i've kind of uh, believed in for a while now uh history uh whatever version of it right all the different versions the small versions the big versions the authorized versions the unauthorized versions <laughs> all of these right each of them is written by somebody um and there was a reason for them writing it so when you look at any situation or any happening right now uh, as a reader of history um you are presented with many different uh, yeah. views and then in contemporary times you have people who pick and choose from these narratives to build their own narrative to justify their world view or their beliefs today right so the one thing that uh, kind of stands out amongst all this is that just being mindful of this just yeah. being mindful of the histories um, how they were written and how they are presented today um, and that there are agendas behind all of these just being mindful of that um, will put us in a position uh, of judging things around us in a much uh, better way so um, let let me try to end it on this pakka hyderabadi note then <laughs> um, so which version of the story do you believe um, do you believe that hyderabad was named after hyder mahal who used to be bhagmati or do you think hyderabad was named because one of the names of hussein the prophet's a uh, grandson was hader the hyderabadi answer seems to be yes isn't that fun <laughs> brilliant thank you for giving us a listen we are the bantaman navin and rishi do check out our website bantaman.com We are available on your favorite podcasting platform and would really appreciate a like. 
Do subscribe if we've managed to intrigue you and please leave a rating and a review or more importantly, your thoughts on anything we've discussed here today. We await your feedback and are happy to take any questions or ideas for future episodes.